Today is August 16th. This is Verses in Flow. I'm Jennifer. Welcome in and welcome back. I'm so glad and so grateful that you decided to show up here with me today. Now, I do have to give you a little warning. We have a lot of tough names to go through again in our reading in the Old Testament, but bear with me. It gets better and better. I have something that I want to address in the closing commentary based on what we're going to read in 1 Corinthians today. So stay tuned, get settled in, and let's flow into these verses. Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 1 through chapter 12, verse 26, Christian Standard Bible, Resettling Jerusalem. Now the leaders of the people stayed in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots for one out of ten to come and live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the other nine-tenths remained in their towns. The people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. These are the heads of the province who stayed in Jerusalem, but in the villages of Judah, each lived on his own property in their towns, the Israelites, priests, Levites, temple servants, and descendants of Solomon's servants, while some of the descendants of Judah and Benjamin settled in Jerusalem. Judah's Descendants Athiah, son of Uzziah, son of Zechariah, son of Amariah, son of Shephatiah, son of Mahalalel, of Perez's descendants. And Maaseiah, son of Baruch, son of Kol Hose, son of Haziah, son of Adiah, son of Joyarib, son of Zechariah, a descendant of the Shalonite. The total number of Perez's descendants who settled in Jerusalem was 468 capable men. These were Benjamin's descendants. Salu, son of Meshullam, son of Joed, son of Padiah, son of Koliah, son of Maaseiah, son of Ithiel, son of Jeshiah, and after him, Gabai and Salai, 928. Joel, son of Zikri, was the officer over them, and Judah, son of Hasanua, was second in command over the city. The priests, Jediah, son of Joyarib, Jachin, and Sariah, son of Hilkiah, Son of Meshullam, son of Zadok, son of Moraoth, son of Ahitub, the chief official of God's temple, and their relatives who did the work at the temple, 822. Adiah, son of Jeroham, son of Pelaliah, son of Amzi, son of Zechariah, son of Pashur, son of Malchijah, and his relatives, the heads of families, 242. Amashasai, son of Azarel, son of Azai, son of Meshillamoth, son of Emmer, and their relatives, capable men, 128. Zabdiel, son of Hagadalim, was their chief. The Levites, Shemaiah, son of Hashub, son of Azrakam, son of Hashabiah, son of Bunai, and Shabbatai and Josabad from the heads of the Levites, who supervised the work outside the house of God. Mataniah, son of Mika, son of Zabdi, son of Asaph, the one who began the thanksgiving in prayer, Bakbukiah, second among his relatives, and Abda, son of Shamua, son of Galal, son of Jeduthun. All the Levites in the holy city, 284. The gatekeepers, Akub, Talman, and their relatives who guarded the city gates, 172. The rest of Israel, the priests, and the Levites were in all the villages of Judah, each on his own inherited property. The temple servants lived on Ophel. Ziha and Gishpah supervised the temple servants. The Levites and priests, 
The leader of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzi, son of Benai, son of Hashabiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micah, of the descendants of Asab, who were singers for the service of God's house. There was, in fact, a command of the king regarding them and an ordinance regulating the singers' daily tasks. Pethahiah, son of Meshazabel, of the descendants of Zerah, son of Judah, was the king's agent in every matter concerning the people. As for the farming settlements with their fields, some of Judah's descendants lived in Kiriath Arba and Dibon and their surrounding villages, and Jacabziel and its settlements, in Jeshua, Moladah, Beth Palette, Hazar Shual, and Beersheba and its surrounding villages, in Ziklag and Makona and its surrounding villages, in Enramon, Zorah, Jarmuth, and Zenoah and Adullam with their settlements, in Lachish, with its fields and Azekah and its surrounding villages. So they settled from Beersheba to Hinnom Valley. Benjamin's descendants, from Geba, Michmash, Aijah, and Bethel and its surrounding villages. Anathoth, Nob, Ananiah, Hazor, Ramah, Gitaim, Hadid, Zeboam, Nabalat, Lod, and Ono in Craftsman's Valley. Some of the Judean divisions of Levites were in Benjamin. These are the priests and Levites who went up with Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and with Jeshua, Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Maluk, Hatush, Shechaniah, Rehum, Meramoth, Edu, Genethoi, Abijah, Mijamin, Maadiah, Bilga, Shemaiah, Joyarib, Jediah, Salu, Amak, Hilkiah, Jediah. These were the heads of the priests and their relatives in the days of Jeshua, the Levites. Jeshua, Benui, Cadmiel, Sherebiah, Judah, and Mataniah. He and his relatives were in charge of the songs of praise. Back Bukiah, Uni, and their relatives stood opposite them in the services. Jeshua fathered Joachim. Joachim fathered Eliashib. Eliashib fathered Joiada. Joiada fathered Jonathan. And Jonathan fathered Jadua. In the days of Joachim, the heads of the priestly families were Moriah of Sariah, Hananiah of Jeremiah, Meshullam of Ezra, Jehohanan of Amariah, Jonathan of Maluki, Joseph of Shebaniah, Adna of Harem, Helkai of Moriah, Zechariah of Edu, Meshullam of Genethon, Zikri of Abijah, Piltai of Moadiah of Miniamin, Shemua of Bilgah, Johanathan of Shemaiah, Matani of Joyarib, Uzi of Jediah, Kalai of Salai, Eber of Amok, Hashabiah of Hilkiah, and Nethanel of Jediah. In the days of Eliashib, Joiada, Johanan, and Jadua, the heads of the families of the Levites and priests, were recorded while Darius the Persian ruled. Levi's descendants, the family heads, were recorded in the book of the historical events during the days of Jehonan, son of Eliashib. The heads of the Levites, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, son of Cadmiel, along with their relatives opposite them, gave praise and thanks, division by division, as David the man of God had prescribed. This included Mataniah, Bakbukiah, and Obadiah. Meshillam, Talman, and Akub were gatekeepers who guarded the storerooms at the city gates. These served in the days of Joachim, son of Jeshua, son of Josedek, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14-33 through 33. Warning Against Idolatry 
So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I am speaking as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I am saying. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? What am I saying then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Christian liberty. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Eat everything that is sold in the meat market without raising questions for the sake of conscience, since the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. If any of the unbelievers invites you over and you want to go, eat everything that is set before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience. But if someone says to you, this is food from a sacrifice, do not eat it out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your own conscience, but the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I also try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many so that they may be saved. Psalm 34 verses 11 through 22. Come, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is someone who desires life, loving a long life to enjoy what is good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn away from evil and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry for help. The face of the Lord is set against those who do what is evil to remove all memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. One who is righteous has many adversities, but the Lord rescues him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil brings death to the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be punished. The Lord redeems the life of his servants and all who take refuge in him will not be punished. Proverbs chapter 21 verses 14 through 16. A secret gift soothes anger, and a covert bribe fierce rage. Justice executed is a joy to the righteous, but a terror to evildoers. The person who strays from the way of prudence will come to rest in the assembly of the departed spirits. Okay, so let's talk about what we read in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians today. So 
The people at the church at Corinth were concerned about eating food sacrificed to idols. This was a complex and controversial issue in their time and culture. They lived in a pagan society that worshipped many gods and goddesses and that offered animal sacrifices to them in their temples. The meat from these sacrifices was then sold in the market or served at social gatherings like feasts or banquets. Some of the Corinthians who had converted to Christianity from paganism felt that eating this meat was a violation of their conscience and their loyalty to God. They felt that by eating this meat, they were participating in idolatry and dishonoring God. They also felt that by eating this meat, they were endangering their salvation and risking the wrath of God. But then there were other Corinthians who had a more mature understanding of their Christian freedom, and they felt that eating this meat was a matter of indifference and liberty. They felt that they were not out of order, nor were they participating in idolatry or dishonoring God in any way. They actually felt that by eating this meat, they were exercising their right as believers and enjoying just another one of God's gifts. Paul addresses this issue by giving them a few guidelines to inform their behavior. He instructs them to step away from anything that could jeopardize their faith in God or their love for each other. He reminds them to honor the Lord regardless of what activity they were doing, whether it was eating, drinking, or whatever. He also says that they should prioritize the well-being of others and not just focus on their own desires and interests. He advises them to be aware of how their decisions could affect those who are vulnerable or unbelieving. Lastly, he told them to act only for the glory of God and not for their own gain. So how can we relate this issue to our context and culture today? I think there are several ways that we can think about this and that we can apply these principles to our own lives as believers. First, we should be mindful of how idolatry can enter our lives. Idolatry, as we've talked about before, is more than just bowing down to a statue or an image. It is anything that takes the place of God in our hearts or in our minds. That could be money, power, fame, pleasure, a person. These are all examples of things that we may unintentionally prioritize over God. We must be aware of this subtle yet insidious sin because it can corrupt us and deteriorate our relationship with God and with other people. As such, we should take time to examine ourselves and invite God in always to help us remove anything that even looks like it might be coming before him in our lives. Second, we should glorify God in everything that we do. Everything we do has a spiritual dimension to it and a moral impact. We have to learn how to collapse or dissolve the distinction between what is sacred and what is secular in our lives. What I mean by that is, to the best of our ability, we shouldn't live as if some actions are neutral or indifferent, but rather as if everything matters and as if everything has consequences. We can strive to live in a way that acknowledges our interconnectedness with God and with those around us, taking responsibility for our actions and allowing ourselves to be held accountable. 
Third, we should seek the good of others above our own interests. Now, I know that is hard because we live in a culture that promotes and champions individualism, selfishness, and self-centeredness. The world tells us that we should pursue our own happiness and our own satisfaction at any cost. But as Christians, that ain't it. That is not the goal. We're called to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. We're called to serve others more than we serve ourselves. We're called to sacrifice our preferences sometimes for the sake of others. We are called to follow the example of Christ, the ultimate sacrifice, who gave his life for ours. To make this passage even more relevant, let's consider what this issue might look like for us today. Because obviously, we are not going to the market asking if the meat that we're purchasing was previously offered to a pagan deity. However, there is something that we can still extract from this. For example, one issue that we can think about is the consumption of alcohol. Now, we know that alcohol can be a contentious issue in Christian circles, particularly in the context of social gatherings, with some believers abstaining completely while others choosing to drink in moderation. Now, to my knowledge, the Bible does not explicitly forbid the consumption of alcohol, yet it repeatedly warns against excessive drinking that can lead to drunkenness or recklessness. On one hand, there are believers who may feel uncomfortable consuming alcohol due to the potential of engaging in behavior that might not honor their commitment to God. Now, some believers also worry about causing others to stumble, especially if those individuals have battled with alcohol misuse or addiction or been pained by alcoholism in other relationships. Now, on the other hand, though, there are Christians who view the moderate consumption of alcohol as a personal freedom, something enjoyable and relaxing when consumed responsibly. They might point to instances in the scriptures where wine is a part of celebrations and feasts, seeing it as another of God's gifts to enjoy. And, you know, those particular Christians are always like, well, Jesus turned water into wine. The teachings of Paul can be applied to this situation here just as appropriately as the situation in the day of the church at Corinth. First, the prioritization of God above all else is paramount. And if drinking alcohol becomes a behavior that competes for this primary place in our lives, then it might be time to reconsider our habits. Second, as in all things, our goal should be to glorify God. If we choose to consume alcohol, it should be done in a way that does not dishonor God or compromise our relationship with him or cause harm to others. We should always be mindful of our surroundings and those around us. And if we sense that our actions are causing offense or may cause offense, we should probably abstain from drinking in that environment. This calls for a mindful and responsible approach. The Christian calling, like it or not, is one of sacrificial love. And if our drinking could potentially cause others to struggle in their faith or with addiction, then we ought to abstain at least in their presence. It's a matter of prioritizing the spiritual and physical well-being of others above our own personal freedoms. To sum up, whatever modern issue we grapple with as Christians, we can apply Paul's guidelines by first examining our own hearts and our motivations. 
If we do that, we will make sure that our choices and our behaviors always reflect our commitment to God. And this will also help us to consider the welfare of our fellow believers. Now, here's what I'm going to do. If I'm in a situation, and whether it's drinking or not, but let's just say, because we're talking about alcohol, let's just say that it was a situation where there was an unbelieving person who felt like to drink is wrong. Well, first, I'm going to try to educate them and show them where, scripturally speaking, it isn't wrong, that drunkenness is wrong, recklessness is wrong, drinking to the point where we lack clarity and judgment is wrong, but drinking itself is not. So I'm going to try to educate them first. But if they are stubborn or averse or do not want to change their perspective and they they feel like it is actually wrong, well, then that's not a person who I am personally going to engage in that kind of activity with. I'm not going to do that with them around because I do want to be mindful of how my actions affect others, particularly unbelievers. And so you do with that what you will, but I just thought that I would offer that perspective. And if you see something different, please, y'all know y'all can always email me or leave a comment. My email address is jennifer at versesandflow.com. All right, let's pray, y'all. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your wisdom and guidance in our lives. Lord, help us to constantly examine our hearts and our motivations and to remove any idols that may take your place in our lives. Help us to always keep you first and to glorify you in everything we do, even in the smallest of things. Lord, give us the strength and the courage to seek the good of others above our own interests and to love our neighbors as ourselves, as you have commanded us to do. Guide us in making responsible and mindful choices that reflect your love and mercy and grace towards everybody. Lord, and in this moment of reflection, we just ask for your continued presence and clarity in our decision-making processes. Help us to maintain a clear mind and help us to discern right from wrong. Grant us the strength to weigh our options with wisdom and prudence. And as we face various challenges and choices, Lord, we ask for clarity of mind. Help us to focus our thoughts, tune out distractions, and see our situations the way that you see them, that we might make decisions aligned with your will. Give us discernment to distinguish between fruitful and destructive paths and empower us to choose the actions that bring us closer to you and your purpose for our lives. Lord, help us in our decision making. Lead us carefully in evaluating the pros and cons of each choice that we face, pointing us towards decisions that benefit not only ourselves, but also those around us and that serve your greater plan. Lord, we place our faith and our trust in you, knowing that your eternal wisdom far surpasses our own understanding. Lord, with open hearts, we willingly submit our will in exchange for yours and commit ourselves to following the path that you lay before us. In Jesus' holy and precious name, we pray. And all the people of God said together, amen. And our affirmation, I am disciplined, focused, and ready for growth. I am disciplined, focused, and ready for growth. And our aphorism, 
To think is easy, to act is difficult, to act as one thinks is the most difficult. That is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for being on this extraordinary expedition with me. You belong here and we belong together on this journey. I love you. And if God says the same, I'll be right here tomorrow waiting for you.